0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Jaja Dja, Dja Wurrung, Tung Wurrung, and Wundjeri Woi Wurrung people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present.
1: So there's a really great invigoration in the region with um, more young winemakers and young viticulturalists uh, up here, and um, we're really very fortunate that we're only, you know, um, an hour's drive from, uh, you know, 5 million people of Melbourne.
0: This is Over a Glass, I'm Shante Whale. Ben Rankin has extensive experience in winemaking both in Australia and around the world. His label Willamy combines his vast experience in the cellars with his hands-on approach as Vigneron. I've been following Ben's career for numerous years and always look forward to what he unearths in his home of the Macedon Ranges. Hi Ben, thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, good to be here Shante, nice to hear your voice.
0: Oh, it's so. I'm really thrilled. Thank you. I know you're incredibly busy at the moment in in your winery. How did the this morning's pinot noir press go-y?
1: Uh Actually, I'm um, believe it or not, I'm still pressing. So <laughs> um, no, it's up. going well. though. at the very end of uh, the press, so it's no problem at all. Um, but no, I've only got uh, two more to go, and then uh, then we're probably close to the end of the harvest, which is great.
0: Fantastic! I can already hear the beers being cracked open and the celebrations beginning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. We, um, uh, it's been a long and arduous uh, vintage this year. Been a very unusual one. Uh, just been obviously with a, um, a La Nina event again, um, as most Australian winemakers would understand. The cooler years um, are always uh, more challenging than the uh, the easy warm years.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it's been a bit of everything everywhere. And I was going to ask you of that. So, I mean, what, how do you prepare for that? Is it just that you've just got to make sure you've got time in the winery to, to be picking things at the right time? Or, or how do you, yeah, how do you get yourself organized?
1: Um, well, you need to cross your fingers and pray. <laughs> um, and you have to have lots of patience. It's very much a patience year here. Uh, here in the Macedon Ranges um, in particular, we're obviously you know the coldest region on mainland Australia and probably colder than a lot of Tassie as well. And I know the Tasswegians won't be happy hearing me say that, but the fact is we are. And um, really, we're just looking at, you know, I've got four different um, uh, weather apps and you're trying to get a gauge on what's happening. With the weather next week and the week after, and uh, you have to have a lot of patience because it's um, a very slow ripening season here, particularly in a in a uh, in a wet cool year, and. Um and really try and uh, manage picking around those uh, rain events, which can be a challenge, particularly uh, in the back of COVID with um, the challenges of finding workers for picking. Um, that's been really tough for everyone in the business, I think, around the country. And uh, so you know, you're sort of predicting to pick two, three weeks out by booking the contractors in to try and preempt a picking date. And then, you know, at the last minute, you're cancelling and pushing it out again. Um, it's pretty tough. It's been very uh, um, logistically challenging. And uh, and I think patience is the key in, um, in these cooler areas um, to try and find that right window before a rain event, uh, and obviously when the fruit's ripe. Um, and then, fingers crossed, you can get the pickers to pick at the right time. And that's been one of the big challenges and headaches uh, that's in the industry and probably all horticultural farm industries for the last couple of years. It's been a massive challenge for everyone run, really.
0: Absolutely. And mm. I, I, I can't imagine how, like you said, you have to be patient, but it's one thing to say that and another to do it. And I imagine <clears throat> a bit like a, a watch pot, you know, never boils. Do you just wander through the vines or do you try to do something else that's completely different to get your mind off? You know, off, just kind of standing around. What do you do? Uh,
1: well, you chase birds <laughs> to keep them off the uh, the crop. Uh, no, it's a good question, actually. Um, look, we um, had a slight change in direction this year. Uh, with um, we uh, we, and we knew we we're having a very low yield again for the third year in a row. So I've had to um, sort of subsidise a bit of our income by buying a bit of heathcote fruit. Um, for, so last year and this year, so that sort of got our harvest going a bit earlier than normal and so really we had something to do in the cellar with um i had a bit of fiano and a bit of shiraz to muck around with and um and then really uh in the vineyard it's just really um just patience checking the nets making sure the birds don't get in and uh and waiting really um And that's um, been really, you know, everyone's impatient naturally, so you want to get off and running. And then uh, um, really everyone was in a rush to get everything off um, before Easter because it was a rain um, at the end of uh, Easter, so about 10 days ago. And... um, so luckily we got, it. we got all our fruit off just before that rain. So um, that was a relief actually because 62 mils of rain is, uh, is a fair bit and that would have been um, mm. uh, set us back a couple of weeks and, and then provided some botrytis problems and all that sort of stuff. So really, um, you yeah, know, there's, there's so much luck in winemaking. <laughs> You've got to finger, cross your fingers and your toes. Um, and uh, as I said, have a lot of patience.
0: Wow! Yeah, doesn't it doesn't sound easy, and, and and the anxiety I imagine in in some of those years must be pretty hectic. But uh, you seem like a pretty patient person in general, uh, Ben. W- I wanted to talk a little bit about how you got your start in winemaking. We met, um, I think, for the first time it was actually way back in 2012 when you were making wine for Gali Estate, which is uh, a big operation. So talk us through kind of. You know where you got your mm. start in wine and, and and where you've been brought to today where you're making wines under your own label?
1: Yeah, well, really, um, I started uh, in wine with my parents having a vineyard. Um, they planted one of the first vineyards uh, in the New South Wales region of Tumbarumba in the foothills of uh, Kosciuszko. So um, I uh, really had a start there, not in winemaking, but in viticulture, Uh, and that was really mum and dad diversifying on the farm. And uh, yeah, really, um, I uh, went to uni in Melbourne, um, doing engineering, surveying, cartography, and uh, drank a lot of beer and had a lot of fun, and realized this is not for me. I better, uh, <laughs> better go and make the stuff that I'm drinking. <laughs> so um, I fell into winemaking that, in that regard, and uh, um, that was the best thing I ever did. And um, uh, yeah, I worked in the Yarra as my first harvest down there while I was studying um, by correspondence, which is what most winemakers do. And then, um, and then, like every Aussie, we all love traveling, and uh, instead of doing the Kentucky's or the, the two year stint in London, um, I was able to um, spend the next eight years sort of um, travelling between hemispheres from uh, wine region to wine region in, in Europe and America. Um, and uh, that was all obviously easy to do while you're young and single. So. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so really that's some, uh, a pretty mm. brief uh, story of where, where I went. Um, and then I ended up finding myself um, at Galley Estate, um, which is on the, uh, the west side of Melbourne in Sunbury and also Heathcote. And uh, I think we met when we were doing the um, Lorenzo Galli Scholarship in, um, in a masterclass in Italian wines um, 10 years ago, Shantae. So I've had an um, amazing uh, passion and influence with the Italian varieties of what's going on in Australia. And uh, yeah, then we bought our farm here, um, an old, one of the oldest vineyards in, uh, in Macedon. Um, back in 2013. Um, my wife and I bought that property and that was sort of halfway between my job and the vineyard in Heathcote. So uh, that sort of suited great. Uh, and then um, I made wine for a lot of people, um, contract winemaking at Galley Estate. And uh, one of those clients was um, a little vineyard here in, in Romsey uh, in Macedon called Mount Monument. And uh the owner of that property um, and vineyard is De Katsulidis, who's the architect who designed um, Mona down in Tassie and Eureka, one of the highest buildings in Melbourne. And so this is his property. And, mm. and he, just, he said, come on, board, Ben, we're going to build a winery, sell it to a restaurant. So um, COVID uh, put it back a year, but we're about to open, actually. We had a our, um, our soft opening last week. And uh, which is which is really exciting, and we've done a mini Mona oh, here at Mount Monument um, with lots of sculptures in, in uh, on the property, and uh, I've made the first wines in the winery proper here. I've, I was using um, neighbouring um, vin- uh, wineries at um, Curly Flat and Kilchurn. Uh, making Willamere Mount Monument for the last two years um, with their facilities and now this year we're able to do it ourselves. So that's been really exciting. And uh, now I've got a real foothold in Macedon and and I love the synergies going back to where I grew up at Tumbarumba, being a cold-climate area, mostly sparkling-based varieties here. Chardonnay Pinot are the predominant varieties and uh, my first vintage overseas was Burgundy, so um, I did a stint in New York, uh, upstate New York, um, in the Finger Lakes, which is also Pinot, Shard, Riesling, all cold varieties, so um, I've sort of always been cold climate person, so <laughs> this is where I've ended up.
0: Amazing, yeah, it's kind of come full circle, which I love that. Um,
1: it has indeed, yes.
0: I was gonna ask you a bit, I mean, mean, I've loved the wines that you do at um, Mount Monument, and I feel that there is a synergy between uh, the wines that you have produced We've always kind of had a little bit of your fingerprint in 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 a really wonderful way, not necessarily in a winemaking sense, but in in a feel and and, a, and a, a, almost a flavor sense. So, um, hmm. and working with Chardonnay and Pinot makes a lot of sense. But it wasn't until I went on your website and I was just did a little refresh and I was like, hang on a minute, what's this Shiraz and Fiano? And I was like, that's only just happened. What? <laughs> what? How do I not know about this? So, uh, how have you found working with um, you know just moving into some of those Heathcote for? and and I mean it's been wonderful that you've been able to get your hands on some fruit especially in these hard vintages mm. and how have you found those?
1: Yeah well obviously I've had a lot of experience in the Heathcote region with my previous job at Gallia Estate having a vineyard up there and we had um we had Fiano up there and we had um uh, other, other Italian varietals like Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, Montepucciano, etc. And obviously Shiraz, that's what Heathcote's obviously famous for. So um, I've uh, been involved in that region for a good 10 plus years, so I know a lot of the growers and a lot of the people up there. And so it was um, good, it's been great getting my foot back into Heathcote again and to buy just a few tonnes and, and muck around with it. And really it's only come about because I've had three tiny vintages um, here at Willamy and Macedon and uh, I, re- I was like well I need a bit of extra income here because um, <laughs> these um, small yields um, don't do us uh, any, any help with um, paying the mortgage <laughs> so um, it's got to be done
0: <laughs> uh, exactly
1: right but it's also great I, I really love Fiano as a white variety and I think it's got so much potential in this country uh, and a place like Heathcote which is obviously a warm growing region the natural high acidities um, which is what Mastodon's about it's high acidities um, you don't have to play around with um, the acid, acid side of things you do obviously because it's a warm climate variety, um, but um, I've tried to make Shiraz in a bit more of a juicy, crunchy, uh, more uh, approachable style, medium bodied, rather than the big, big full bodied Heathcote Shirazes, and uh, and then Fiano with a bit of texture, um, you yeah, know, barrel ferment, leave it on gross leaves in in barrel for 12 months rack on the new moon to bottle. So trying to keep it, um, uh, I guess that's a bit more of my philosophy across the board is reflecting uh, the vineyard more than the winemaking than anything else. And I think that's paramount is, uh, the fruit is the vineyard and, and our job as winemakers is to, um, uh, try and capture that in a bottle, the vineyard, rather than, um, any influence of, of, uh, you know, the hand of the winemaker.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can't wait to see them because I am really interested to see your take. And like you said, Fiano's going great guns in quite a few regions. And I'm really excited to see where it goes because uh, we are seeing a lot of people get behind it. And and like you said, it's it's Hmm. well suited to um, a few different um, climates Hmm. in Australia. So very exciting times.
1: Yeah, I think with Fiano too, um, there's a couple of different styles there, like people are making it like Sav Blanc, which is sort of, you know, keep it in stainless steel, keep it fresh, bottle it early and keep it, you know, vibrant. And others are doing what I'm doing, which is more like Chardonnay, you know, in the barrel, um, wild ferment, leave it there for 12 months and and bring more texture to the wine rather than that crunchiness that that Sav Blanc would have. So that's really going to be quite interesting to see where Fiano goes in Australia and what consumers uh, are more akin to, whether that's the, textual side of things or the the bright vibrant you know Savvy Blanc sort of style
0: mm. or with or whether we just get a bit of both and then it mm. continues on in, the, in two veins but um mm. I want to talk about the Maston. it is one of my favorite regions to drink <laughs> from in the whole of Australia and I still haven't been down there which is terrible oh, of me change that. <laughs> oh definitely especially now that you've got these amazing facilities about monument but tell yeah. me about the Maston Ranges why is it so special
1: Oh, look, really, really simple. Um, it's, uh, as I said, it's um, it's an hour from Melbourne, which is amazing. Uh, and very few people in Melbourne even realise we're here. Everyone goes sort of east or south, southeast to, to Yarra and Mornington. But we're um, on the Great Dividing Range. Um, we're high elevation. Well, for Australia, we are. Most vineyards are above 600 metres. Um, we're obviously a cold climate, so it's... A, a really beautiful region for um, chard and pinot um, and obviously sparkling-based varieties. Uh, and um, and it's a very tiny region. Like, it's, um, it's only probably about, uh, maybe as a crow flies, 30 to 40 kilometres um, from north to south, but it's sort of a wide region, probably about 60 kilometres from east to west. So um, that's sort of following the Great Divide as it hooks around the bottom of Victoria towards the Grampians. Um, and, uh, um, really, um, there's, um, such very few producers in this region. There's less than 40. And, uh, I think the total crush out of the region is about 1,500 tons on average. And to put that in, mm. into perspective for some of your viewers, um, you know, a, a small winery in Australia, um, anywhere would produce a thousand, two thousand tons, and they're still considered um, yeah, medium to small. You know, in the Yarra Valley, the De these when I was there twenty years ago we were doing five thousand tons. Domaine Chandon about the same, five thousand tons. Um, that's just one or two wineries in the Yarra. Um, that's for example, anyway, to give you a bit of perspective. in this whole region is fifteen hundred tons. So everyone's a small bespoke producer. Um, there's um, a lot of the old school producers um, uh, are slowly um, passing on to the next generation or they're moving on themselves and, and other young people are able to come in and, and buy that vineyard or buy that fruit. And so there's a really great invigoration in the region with um, more young winemakers and young viticulturists uh, up here. And... Um, we're really very fortunate that we're only you know um an hour's drive from uh you know five million people of Melbourne so um that's uh great and people are coming up to Hanging Rock um as well and also um obviously Dalesford to the to the west um is a very popular little town in the region um but uh yeah really Chardon Pinot and a little bit of Riesling as well probably the three main uh key varieties in this region um and as a winemaker I think all winemakers love to make those three varieties. If they had a had their chance to make um, some premium uh, wine, they'd be the three premium varieties you'd probably choose. Most of us would.
0: Definitely. Want to yeah. make them and they want to drink them for sure. <laughs> yeah,
1: totally, exactly right. Yeah, make and drink, very important. So, um, And it's great, you know, we have some great iconic um, vineyards here. Bindi, obviously, has been here for 20, 30 years and it's arguably one of the best Pinots in the country. And Curly Flat aren't far behind and they've been reinvigorated with um, Matt Harrop there and, and making amazing uh, pinos again, and um, and then you've got the new people like um, the Josh Cooper. He's the son of uh, Cobor Ridge, so he's reinvigorated Cobor Ridge, and then his own brand, and the Dilworth and the Lanes. Um, to um, other little places like Lions, Will, uh and so forth. So Passing Clouds, there's some lovely little wineries and and, uh, and, and the people in this region are, are fantastic. We're quite a close-knit little community um, of winemakers and um, that's another really important part of the region. It's just great people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you in that there is a real sense of um, community but also, like you said, you hear the word boutique thrown around willy-nilly these days and it tends to not mean anything to me at times but you really can't deny that the labels from the maston have that real handcrafted boutique feel about them and such premium wines as well and and i hope that with the development and things like this podcast going out that you know people (laughs) recognize and visit the region but that it doesn't become you know overburdened with just huge um I don't know, tourism, that kind of destroys yeah. the sense of it because it is um, precious, but at the same time, you know, you can't really blame people. You can't keep secrets like this for yourself, for yourself you know. all the time.
1: No, I know what you mean. I sort of see, like, um, uh, Macedon's like where the Yarra was 30 years ago, um, well before, you know, the Yarra was developed and became the tourist. Um, and good luck to them Well, and well done to them. Yeah. Um, But um, yeah, Macedon is uh, just so tiny. But I don't don't envisage any big corporates because the land is expensive. Uh, Also, there's, um, as we are a cold region um, and lots of little valleys and so forth, there's lots of frost zones, so there's lots of area here which uh, you would be crazy to plant a vineyard in. Um, you really need uh, a little bit of elevation on the slope um, so you get that airflow to avoid those spring floss, because that is the biggest issue in the region. Um, and, um, and then also the reason another reason we came up here was because with climate change being a cool, cool region. We've got um, pretty good water here, and uh, you know that sort of. Um, I, I'm looking, you know, looking to the future, whether my, my daughters take on the business after me, or whoever does, they'll still have a viable business in the in the years to come. With respect to climate change, um, it's sort of benefited us in a way, which is really crazy to say, but it's brought our harvest forward um, from May into early April, late March. Um, So hence more viable for table wines in this region. Um, Mm. Years like this year, we're back to mid to late April in in harvesting and there's still some vineyards in the region that are higher elevations here that are still another couple of weeks away from picking Pinot and Chardonnay. Um, uh, So... Um, it is a viable region to the future and that's really exciting as well, so, um, but there's a lot of areas which, are, um, which aren't akin to, to, to wine because of frosts and so forth. So um, it is very bespoke and, and uh, very niche, a uh, little region.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a bit of local knowledge would never go astray if you're looking to <laughs> invest in the area. Um, I want to talk Bad. about two, uh, two of your – well, I want to talk all, about all your wines. I mean, your Chardonnays. <laughs> I literally wax lyrical about your Chardonnay. Anyone that knows me knows I – absolutely adore them but let's talk about underwater Pinot noir because um, (laughs) that's really exciting and I and I really think that um, we'd love to hear from you about that so the process of elevage of wine Mm. below sea level is something that has been done um, in a few places around the world but where did uh, this little experiment for you come about and how did you go about it?
1: Yeah, right. Great. Um, good question. Well, I came about it, uh, oh, geez, nearly 20 years ago um, when I was working in the Yarra Valley at the Bortleys and Steve Weber, the owner and, and boss there, winemaker, had just been over to Spain and, and had, um, had one of those um, uh, wines to drink and he was waxing lyrical about it, how exciting it was. And... Um, uh, I was like, wow, I'd love to give this a try. Um, so it's um, one of those things that's been in the back of my mind for um, 20 years, and I haven't had the opportunity to um, uh, to taste any, any underwater wine or to make any underwater wine. So um, hence, um, when we bought Willamy, uh, I was like, wow, righto, now's my chance to... Um, Unveil that secret I've had in the back of my mind for 20 years, and, uh, and see what happens, and, and see what it's like, because I had not really tasted any of those wines. I wanted to um, find out. Well, what's to go? So I um, I had some um, clean skin Shiraz actually at my old job at Galley Estate, and I put um, half a dozen in a bucket to see um, how those wines would go underwater for four, and they were under underwater for four years, just in a bucket of water. And the screw, cop, screw caps had completely rusted, so I um, uh, realised that screw caps were not viable for underwater maturation. So I had to go with uh, cork, well, diam natural cork. So. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, that's the reason why our Willamie Pinot is in Cork. Um, and yeah, so 2015 was our first vintage uh, at Willamy, And um, after a year in barrel, after being bottled clean skin um, in the winter of 2016, I was able to put 20% of our Willamie Pinot underwater. And uh, at Willamie we, because we bought an old existing vineyard and also winery, there was a an existing winery there. So there's, there's three 5,000 litre wine tanks there. And that's where I store the wine underwater. Um, I was tempted to go to the ocean, um, but because uh, that's where everyone else does it in the world, and that's where you hear the stories about shipwrecks, obviously, in the ocean. Um, but I um, decided to. Not do that, because I knew someone, you know, some diver would eventually find it and, uh, nick it, they're looking for lobster or whatever. <laughs> and, and also, I'm not much of a diver, so I wasn't really going to go an hour and a half, two hour drive down to the coast to uh, bury some wine <laughs> in the ocean. So, hence, um, uh, I'm probably the only person in the world doing freshwater. Um, I wasn't going to do it in our dam, um, because our dam's our life source of our property and I only have one dam and it's spring fed in the winter, um, with winter rain. So, um, uh, I didn't want to um, dredge that dam or or um, or um, anything like that. So hence I'm going to use those wine tanks, um, fill it up with dam water and um, there I've left the wine for five years underwater maturing. Um, so last winter um, was uh, the five year mark of our 2015 Pinot and I um, chose five years because um, well, obviously, you hear the stories of um, of 100 years um, in the ocean, and uh, um, obviously can't wait 100 years, uh, like the shipwreck analogy. So um, I thought, well, look, you know, what's a nice round number? One or two years is probably not going to be long enough. It's going to be a bit of a marketing gimmick. You know, wines don't evolve or change that much in one or two years. So I chose five years to see... Um, how it would go and obviously i've done it every year um since 2015 so i've been able to pull out a bottle every year and have a taste myself to see how it evolves but um i like the roundness of five years i've, I've kept a few bottles um underwater for a few extra years from the 15 vintage to see how it evolves and we'll see how Great. that tracks but um uh yeah so one thing we found that being underwater is that. Um, uh, it slowed the maturation of the wine. So when comparing it to the control, which is the same wine in the cellar, um, and I've been able to sell a few bottles to clients and, and customers you know, a bottle of each so they can compare and taste the difference themselves. Um, but the general consensus has been is that the wine underwater has been fresher, maintaining um, its fruit and, and so forth, but the structure has slightly changed because of uh, um, you know the pressure of being underwater. Um, but um, interestingly when when uh, doing a bit of research about all the underwater guy, people doing underwater um, wines in Europe in particular, um, they're all saying that it, it uh, um, the wines mature more quickly. So you're actually seeing a young wine, Looking older than what it is. And um, in the evidence that I've seen with Wilhelmy Pino, it's the inverse. So there's mm. a c- couple of theories to that, and it's all, again, you know, this is the, the thing, it's pretty much um, speculation and, and theor- theorized. Um, but in a tank with fresh water, you know, um, 150 kilometres from the ocean, there's no current, there's no wine movement apart from natural movement um, in the tank from the influence of the moon, which is which is not that great. Whereas in the ocean, you've got the tidal movement and also current movement. So the wines are constantly being moved in the bottle um, mm. underwater at whatever depth it may be. So I think that has a large bearing on, on the maturation of the wine. I also can't see how the wines in in the ocean would be uh, more forward and and um, uh, you know drinking like the more aged, because when you hear about the stories of a, of someone drinking a hundred year old champagne that's been underwater for a hundred years, the wine still looks fresh and vibrant. Not mm. like a three hundred year old wine. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so with that, I'm thinking, well, those champagnes in the shipwreck are probably buried in the mud. In the um, uh, so, therefore, they're not as um, uh, not having that tidal and hence some um, uh, current movement of the the, the, the wine's moving so much because they're actually in the mud. Um, but again, I'm only theorising this. It's it's a bit, um, uh, you know, but. Trying to figure out um, why our wines look fresher and more vibrant than um, the control, as opposed to the guys doing the same thing um, in the ocean. Um, maybe it's also because I'm doing Pinot. I don't know why it is. No one else is doing Pinot. Everyone else is they're doing more Mediterranean varieties rather than Pinot. Um, so maybe it's because I'm doing Pinot. I don't know. It's it's really interesting to try and figure all this out, and um, and uh, these conversations have been more. Um, Uh, Prevalent um, in the last 12 months since I released that wine uh, last September. So, um, so I'll release the the 2016 Pinot, um, which is five years underwater, this coming September October. And I'm I'm guessing we'll have lots more conversations about why the wines um, look fresher, or or some people may think they don't. (laughs) Um, But it's really it's really great great conversations to have.
0: It really is. And I think that, um, I mean, I could feel like we could chat about this for another couple of hours because I'm fascinated by it. I, I, I'm a bit of a diver, so I just, I can imagine, you know, <laughs> coming across your wines just off the coast and, you know, grabbing a lobster and, and a little drink would be pretty awesome. But I mean, at the same time, you know, I always thought that maybe that kind of slower evolution had to do with maybe kind of pressure depth. But, you know, a lot of the great wines of the world have been a result of of them being out to the elements, things like Madeira over a passage of time being left mm. in the sun in barrels. Mm. So I think that, you know, this is just a natural progression of where we can see wine going. And mm. and like you said, whether it be that it is slower evolution or greater color, it Density. Mm, it's mm. um, it's fascinating that you're doing it and that you're spending the time. And like you said, it's it's not easy to put some of those bottles down. Going well, they could be stuffed, and you know, uh, I <clears throat> I could be selling them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, totally.
1: But if you don't take any risks in business or in life, you know, you're never going to have the reward. So um, you know, you got to give it a go, and that's what I did. So it was fun doing it, and it's fun still doing it, and, and going to have great conversations over the, over the many years to come with, with um people like yourself and and also our clients who. Um, you know be drinking and tasting those wines and, and getting that feedback but um you know um like in anything you know you've got to give it a go and, and see what happens so um it's fun doing it
0: absolutely and look the wine sold out which is fantastic and mm. like you said in september you're going to release your 16s for anybody that's savvy enough to be online <laughs> and grab a couple of bottles there yeah. is a limit uh, on how many you're selling which i like because yes. i mean people get to share them around no, a little bit it, more as that's well that's
1: important definitely yeah for sure
0: I think there is three bottles of the 15 maybe available at key if anybody is uh, (laughs) going by that way to have and wants a little cheeky uh, sample of the 15. But um, I I just really commend you for doing such a thing. And I think uh, it it leaves room for so much conversation, especially over a glass of wine, having a chat. Uh, I'd love to do it. But. Let's also talk about your Blanc de Blanc de releases as well because oh, yeah. again, talking about patience, I knew you were a patient man because <laughs> you've released some nineteen ninety five with long time on Lee's sparkling wine. Mm. How'd all that go? And and you know, how did um how did you want to add sparkling to the portfolio? I mean, it sounds like a natural progression, but you tell me.
1: Well, really, um it's actually again coming back to a similar story with the um, Fiano and Shiraz, because we've had three tiny vintages, uh, I've had to sort of look for alternative um, uh, ideas and uh, an opportunity came about because I was making the wines at um, Kiltern, which is the old Cote Williams vineyard here in Macedon. Um, Gordon Cote Williams, the owner of that vineyard, he passed away um, of old age at the beginning of COVID and uh, his sons put his cellar up for sale and uh, because I was making some wines there, I would have a bit of a look at what they had in the cellar. And um, really, this is credit to Gordon Cope Williams uh, more than anyone else. But it was um, his Blanc de Blanc from 1995, and I was only first year out of uh, out of school in 1995, so I didn't make the wine. <laughs> um, uh, but no, so it's his his fruit, his his wine. And he had, obviously, I don't know how or why, but it had forgotten about that. There was a whole palette of it, of Magnums mm. and also bottles, actually, um, 750ml bottles. So I was able to taste, um, there was also 1994, um, Blanc de Blanc, and I was able to taste those wines. And the 94 um, bottle and Magnum were buggered. Uh, the 95 um, bottles were over the over the hill, but the 95 Magnum looked awesome, and I was like, "Whoa, hello, mm. this is going to be great." So, um, there was only 38 dozen in in the pallet, so um, I bought the 38 dozen, uh, and um, and then I got together a great friend of mine, um, ex familiar of the Van Handel Group down here in Melbourne at the Stoke House. Um, his name's Link Riley. Uh, he has a little um, restaurant. Um, up in Bendigo called Harvest and uh, I was like Link come down and have a look at this and help me do dosage um, you know. Um, so he and I sat down together and, and worked out dosage for um, the uh, the Blanc de Blancs and um, there was also a 2013 um, bottle that I also bought from their Cote Williams seller as well and um, so we looked at it and after about an hour we're like these wines don't need any dosage they just need to be um zero so no sugar um uh, we just added a bit of sulfur um when we um uh, took the cap off to put the cork and wire on um because they're quite fragile those wines so you needed to protect them a little bit with that um, process of disgorging and uh voila that was it so (laughs) um it was a, a easy process in the end but it was good having link there with me to um to uh, drawing his expertise on on blanc, on blanc de blanc sparklings, because um, look, I'm, I'm a I'm a, I'm a still winemaker, not a sparkling winemaker. So um, it was really opportunity in all honesty. And then um, we had to design a new label. So my wife painted something abstract. Um, she's a bit of an uh, artistic um, person. So uh, whacked that on the label, and um, so it's had 26 years on lees uh, that um, 1995 magnum and blanc de blanc, and um, yeah, we um, just um, put it out there on the market just before Christmas uh, last year. And uh, to be honest with you, I've still got a few bottles because I haven't been out and about showing restaurateurs or anyone, really, because with COVID lockdowns here in Melbourne... I've been and also been so busy here um, in the vineyard. I haven't really shown many people, so there's still a few bottles around (laughs) of that Pont de Blanc, but it looks delicious. It's a great, great example of aged Australian Chardonnay. You know, looking at 26, 27 year old um, Chardonnay, and the acidity. I mean, obviously you're going to have the acidity being sparkling, but the fruit on it um, is. You know, you got to. I recommend people drinking it out of a uh, Chardonnay glass or a a big sort of balloon glass, not a um, not a flute glass you want to experience it the sharp age chardonnay characters with, with obviously the fizz and the effervescence of sparkling so um yeah it's a really great little project that were an opportunity that i came across and i was very lucky to um to stumble across that opportunity
0: Oh, so fantastic! I mean, I, I know when I saw saw your release of those, I was like, "What? How? Is, yeah. Where has this all come from?" But yes, I want some Like, <laughs> immediately. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, we well, don't get to see that very often, and I'm like, "This is this is no. really interesting Australian history, and you can drink it." And that's what I love about wine. You know, you hear the story about Thomas Jefferson. You, you know that well. Uh, you know, you can you can theoretically buy a wine that he drank back in 1787, um, mm-hmm. and you know, there's very few products or very few things you can do. That. and that's the beauty of, of, of lovely aged wine if, if it ages well it's great to taste history you're drinking history it's gorgeous
0: yeah absolutely and you know there's moments that you know you think that you you really need to savor and but to have a, a, a something special with someone I think everything slows down a little bit sometimes and it helps you just mm. savor an important moment when you can just kind of I don't know narrow your focus from this big wide world where we're just you know saturated in all this Mm. uh, abundance of of flavors and smells and and noise Mm. everywhere and just focus in on a glass sometimes and slow things down and I I just think it yeah it polarizes moments more.
1: I like that. You're spot on. Slow things down. And again, that comes back to patience, doesn't it? So, um, yes.
0: Well, you're right. You're very true. And I'm not... I don't think I'm very patient at
1: all. Well, really, when you think about Australian wine consumers, generally speaking, we are very impatient because most people drink, you know, a bottle of wine within the first 24 hours of, of buying it. So, mm. you know, a lot of people don't sell their wine anymore and um, and a lot of winemakers don't make wine to be sellered. They make wine to be to be drunk in the next... You know, three, four years. So, um, uh, but patience is a virtue, and uh, that's what I love about this this region of Macedon. Coming back to Macedon, is that um, uh, there's some beautiful examples of aged Chardonnay and Pinot. Uh, you, you don't get that coming out of um, other regions of Australia with those two varieties. Um, they age beautifully. You know, you can drink a 10, ten year old Bindi Pinot and it's gorgeous, or, or a Curly, or I hope to be in that vein one day with Willamy as well, drinking um, beautifully aged. And that's what I'm trying to I, I look at with the underwater wines. I guess you get the opportunity to taste um uh, you know a bit of history and something with age on it rather than to drink now, make you know, make wines for now, and all that sort of stuff. The juicy, crunchy, you know, anyone can do that. Um, it's like making beer, I guess. But to make wine that um, ages is uh, uh, certainly an art.
0: Absolutely. And and I and like I said, I mean, hopefully, you know, you, you will have a little bit of a stockpile that, you know, you can draw upon. Even if <laughs> and and I can understand when winemakers say, Oh, I've got mm. a little bit for my family set aside and I think, Yeah, absolutely. Why wouldn't you? You know? There's <laughs> gotta be benefits oh, to is. being the winemaker where you put <laughs> some aside and say, Well, I've got some but you know, and then you've got pain yeah. in the butt Samelia okay. saying can't we just have a back, bit of back vintage oh it's from my personal stock no don't give it to them don't give it to them
1: <laughs> well you know I, well, I tend to agree I want my daughters to you know, have open a bottle for their 21st or whatever it is you know um, and then also the next owners because it's part of the history you know, I'd love to pass that on to you know, whoever the, the the whoever inherits our property or, or whatever it is or buys it, um, the next custodians will be able to taste that history and, and pass that on to the ones after that.
0: Absolutely, I want to make, to make <clears throat> comment because I know that you're sitting outdoors right now, while I sit in a in a room close to the city, uh, uh, trying to make it as soundproof as possible. You're out in the elements and we can hear all the beautiful sounds of nature. Where are you sitting and what are you looking out onto?
1: Uh, well, I'm sitting on the, the mount of Mount Monument, uh, in between two new vineyards that we just planted, um, on a terrace vineyard, which is quite unusual. I, I planted a terrace vineyard here um, last year and the year before. So um, half the terrace vineyard uh, one-year-old Pinot uh, vines, um, 115 and 777, the two clones. And then the other half I planted last um, spring is um, uh, two different clones of Riesling and two different clones of Nebbiolo, actually. So um, here on a terrace vineyard. And then about 20 metres away, there's one, two, five, six kangaroos just grazing in between the vines. Um, so yeah, I've got a lovely view of the valley here. Um, there's a few uh, little smoke piles rising in the valley from people doing little burn-offs. Um, now that uh, you know autumn is here and um, you know fire season's um, gone beyond us, people are starting to burn a few little piles, and uh, it's a gorgeous afternoon in the in uh, the Macedon Ranges.
0: Uh, it sounds delightful and all the more reason for me to get down and see it for myself. But, uh, I, And I'm very excited about Nebbiolo in your hands. That sounds like some promise for the future to see see what you'll do with that. But um, Looking forward to it. What, what's next on the agenda for you? I mean, you certainly have a lot going on and not somebody that sits idly by. You've got uh, <laughs> someone that sits outside of the box and then always has a new project. I can see that. But what are you really looking forward to? <laughs> other than being done with um, this vintage and being able to relax.
1: with um, uh the opening of the restaurant solid in the next month and uh that'll be exciting and uh having the public coming through looking at the sculptures uh and then really this this terrace vineyard as i just uh mentioned over the next um uh three years um, there'll be a lot of work in uh getting the vines established and, and then hopefully we'll see the first fruit um, here maybe in the 2024 20, vintage or 25 vintage definitely so um, you're always crystal balling in that regard Um, and then also I've got another little project going on in the side as well with um, a dear friend of mine um, uh, Jordan from Travail Wines which is another little um, uh, winery here in the Macedon Ranges and and, uh, Jordan's been leasing a vineyard um, around the corner and Unfortunately, he was, um, he was killed in a car accident about three months ago. Oh. And um, so I've been looking after his vineyard um, there and, and been making his wines um, here in the winery and and uh, um, going look, just looking into that um, business as well and helping his wife get through that. So that's been... Um, uh, a challenge this vintage but also um, important uh, a lot of fun. yeah important as well in his memory and um, you know, a great mate and, and a great person and and uh, yeah and his wife and kids are great people so um, um, hopefully we'll uh, take that. Um, their business and strength to strength over the next few years as well so that's sort of another little thing I've had on the side Um, if I didn't have enough hours in the day well that certainly um, uh, tipped me over the edge so well hopefully uh, it keeps you out of um,
0: trouble as well
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's uh, yeah that's pretty easy at the moment so um, no uh, so that's what I'm looking forward to is getting this um, terrace vineyard going and then I'm really hopefully um, for all of us in this region to get a um, a nice solid uh, yielding vintage again because a lot of us are um, sort of crying out for um, a nice um, even um, weather spell in spring when we have flowering so that's always our challenge here but we're in the lap of the gods and you can't do anything about that
0: well, we talked a lot about crossing fingers and toes, and we are doing that for an abundant vintage for the next couple for you. <laughs>
1: uh, thanks. So um, no, no, it's great. We're, we're in a great region, so we're very fortunate. Great people, and um, you know, as you know, uh, you know, it's not just the winemakers; it's the, uh, everyone in the in, in the wine industry is a, it's a great people. and It's a great great industry to be involved in, whether you're a sommelier. A viticulturist winemaker or, or just working in a um a, a wine shop it's um it's a fun industry to be involved in so um uh we all look after our, each other
0: absolutely i totally agree i thank my lucky stars that uh, happened to fall into into the wine industry when i did uh, i always ask everyone on the podcast ben if you had to drink mm-hmm. three beverages for the rest of your life what would they be and why
1: Three beverages. Oh wow! Um, you can say alcoholic on non alcoholic You can say yeah, whatever you yeah, want. yeah, yeah. No, right of that. Wow, you got me on the spot there. I would say, um, uh, look. I am very much a wine person. I, I'm, I'm off the beers now. Um, there's too many funky, cool cats that I just don't understand in the beer <laughs> industry. So uh, I like to keep it simple. Um, and I, I do love burgundy, any burgundies. Um, it was my first vintage uh, in 03 um, out, outside of Australia. And I have a, um, a real soft spot, not just because it's burgundy, but it was my first vintage away um, uh, from this country. And obviously, I make Chardonnay Pinot here and obviously Burgundy Chardonnay Pinot so um, I'd say most um, most Burgundies uh, I do have a little soft spot for um, some uh, some whiskeys from Scotland um, mm. in, the, in the Isles um, and uh, and also um, XO's uh, I love um, uh those um, those beverages as well from um cognac a um, mm. little bit of armagnac but i love cognac so i guess my good mate in bordeaux we drank a lot of cognac um at his place in pomerol so um uh, i guess you know beverages always bring you memories and for me you know drinking burgundy reminds me of being in, in burgundy likewise with cognac being in my mate's place in pomerol uh, and a bit of armagnac with um, you know, the Prune d'Argent, You know, eating those prunes soaked in armagnac. Um, I guess that's a beverage and a meal. <laughs> that's allowed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so um, uh, I think um, that would be my uh, my choices as uh, off the cuff.
0: I love it. I love it. Mm. And you're right. It does. It is all about invoking memories and nostalgia and and remembering good times in life. So uh, mm. I th- I can't. Uh, Fault you for any of those, I think, all great drinks. I like the fact that you said, you know, any burgundy. I'm kind of in that vein too. I can't afford it, but,
1: you know. No, neither I can, can I.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're not that fussy. I love it.
1: <laughs> you take what you can get when it comes to burgundy. <laughs> very true. I need more wealthier friends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like uh saying you want to own a boat. You think, no, you just need friends with the boat. You don't need to That's, own the
1: boat. <laughs> here, 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 I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today I know you're busy I'll let you get back to pressing off the rest of the Pinot But thank you so much I promise I will come down and visit one day But thanks for spending the time I absolutely love your wines Love what you do And uh, I wish you all the luck For some very promising, high-yielding vintages in the future
1: (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Shantae And the door's always open So come down and visit And uh, much appreciated Great to have a chat
0: Thank you Cheers to you Thanks, Ben